it's Misha. And this is Tell Them I Am. My mom is a well-hydrated woman, which is great. But when I was a kid, I mean, even now, really, we all get in the car together, my dad drives, and my mom, every time, needs to stop to use the bathroom. And it always plays out the same. My mom has to pee. My dad gets frustrated. They bicker. My mom goes, I have to pee. My dad's like, you drink too much water. And we end up pulling over. And my mom goes to use the restroom. And my dad just sits there muttering to himself. So as a kid, I decide I need to solve this problem. First, I would try to mediate the situation and crawl up between them. Doesn't work. Then I decide I would just hold my pee. I was like five, you guys. No surprise here, it did not work. I don't know where the need to solve problems comes from, but I was really obsessed as a kid, totally overanalyzing things, taking on problems that definitely weren't mine. A kind person might call me a thinker. Like Myers-Briggs, took it when I was 18, was an ENTJ, also known as the debater, which is just another way of saying full of conflict. In my 20s, I got to a point in my life where I had a ton of real problems, not like hold RP problems. I was about to get kicked out of school. I was in this pretty bad depression, just sleeping all day and not eating. I was failing at everything I tried. I was so overwhelmed with thoughts and analysis that I was kind of paralyzed. So I ran off to the desert, as one does, and one day I was sitting in Joshua Tree trying to meditate and it occurred to me that maybe I don't have to analyze my problems all the problems maybe I don't have to solve everything or anything that idea had literally never been an option to me before it's like Tupac said you can spend minutes hours days weeks or even months overanalyzing a situation, trying to put the pieces together, justifying what could have, would have happened. Or you can just leave the pieces on the floor and move the fuck on. This episode, G. Willow Wilson. She's a comic book author, and she wrote the first Marvel comic with a young Muslim woman as the hero, Kamala Khan, a.k.a. Ms. Marvel. So when I was in high school, I was kind of a giant goth. I was the kind of insufferable kid who, who would say that they were not actually a goth, that goths were too pretentious, and that I was above that. <laughs> but nevertheless, I wore the really dark lipstick and, like, the fishnets and the pseudo-Victorian jackets that you could find at, like, Buffalo Exchange. Yeah, I mean, if, if you looked up goth in the dictionary, you would have found a photo of me somewhere. <laughs> Fortunately for me, around the same time, sort of the late 80s, early 90s, this British wave of very literary experimental comics started coming out. And I rapidly became obsessed. <laughs> and one of my absolute favorite series as was the case for a lot of people, was Sandman by Neil Gaiman, which took a World War II-era kind of B-list superhero and turned him into this mythological dream king who goes on adventures with uh, all kinds of different mythical creatures and kind of deconstructs 
Western mythology from a really interesting point of view. So, you know, for me, as like a 14-year-old, 15-year-old mega goth, this was huge and revelatory, not just the story itself, but the medium of comics. Sandman told a kind of story in comic book form that I didn't really know was possible. It was kind of my first exposure to these more literary, more adult kinds of comics. When I was a kid, comics were still considered very much a kid's medium and particularly a a boy's medium. There were not things that were marketed at girls. There were very few books out there that were adjacent to the superhero world that were marketed to adults. So to see a comic book that was very clear and open in its love for that classic superhero story, and yet at the same time talked about Shakespeare and Chaucer and, you know, brought in a very Joseph Campbell kind of view of mythology, just expanded my understanding of what could be done within the pages of a comic book. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. So as I remember it, the first time I found Neil Gaiman's Sandman, I was at the apartment of a friend who was, I think, about two years older than me and had graduated, and they were already living on their own, and so were were very kind of cool and grown up in my eyes. You know, the, the people who lived there had also been giant goths, so there were clove cigarettes, which were still legal at the time, sitting around in ashtrays. And that's kind of always what it smelled like, which I like the smell of. But it it had that kind of late 90s goth aesthetic. Every All the windows were kind of draped in like Joanne fabric in, in sort of dark gothy colors. It was, it was just that kind of place. This apartment had a collective library of all kinds of great stuff. And they were all reading Sandman. And, uh... They had they had just sort of made a rule, you can read whatever you want, but don't take anything out of the apartment. But because their library was so big, I was like, nobody will notice if I just kind of sneak these back issues out and read them on my own. So I did. And uh, it was one of those reading experiences that, that kind of sticks out in your mind as being something for which there is a before and an after you read this book. It made me feel... A lot less grubby as a goth. You know, it was a very unabashedly goth comic. And it was kind of cool to see something with such a huge cultural impact that was kind of headlined by this very goth guy with white makeup and extremely scruffy kind of Robert Smith of the Cure hair. (laughs) And it was kind of a nice affirmation that you could do this stuff and you'd be kind of like a mopey teenager and yet have cool stories that meant something 
and that were ultimately uplifting and were about hope. So, you know, it was, in, in that sense, nice to see goths doing some kind of artistic service <laughs> for, the, for the wider world. The kind of storyteller that he was was very influential. And then as I got a little bit older and I, I, I saw him a couple of times, back, this is back when he used to tour, I was also very impressed with the way that he approached writing and being a writer and uh, it, it, being a human being. There was one instance in which I saw him, along with a bunch of other really amazing comic book writers, including, I think, Peter David, at MIT just a few days, not more than a week after 9-11. 9-11 happened just a couple of weeks after my 19th birthday, at the beginning of my junior year of college. And, you know, I was, I was very much a college student. I was kind of going through a late adolescent, what does it all mean phase. I'd become interested in, in religion and started to sort of rethink what I assumed about life and purpose and, uh, you know, our, our sort of our place in the universe. And like everybody, I think it was, it was a tremendous shock. I, I think particularly people of my vintage, kind of elderly millennials or zennials, had never known a time when the U.S. felt really threatened. The Cold War was kind of over. There was a sense that we were separate from the rest of the world or that nothing could ever interrupt that period of prosperity into which we had been born. And so 9-11 just massively shook the foundations of our generational experience. And especially being in Boston, at Boston University, the feeling of ongoing threat and vulnerability was quite high. Two of the planes had taken off from Logan Airport. There were all kinds of rumors circulating that there were still terrorist cells in the city. And so it really did feel uh, like a war zone in many ways. And it occurred to me, just sort of walking to class, that this is the reality that so much of the rest of the world faces every single day. And somehow we have managed to avoid it for this long. And now here we are just like the rest of the world. As we did for a lot of things during those weeks after 9-11, we kind of hung around to see if this event was actually going to happen because a lot of them were canceled. And it was clear that, yes, it was going to happen. It was still going on. So we, you know, we decided, okay, well, we're not, we're not going to give up this, this chance to see all of these amazing authors and artists on stage at the same time. And we decided, yeah, we're going to go. We're going we're gonna to do it, uh, d despite the sort of aura of anxiety and, and, and dread that was kind of hanging over everything. What was interesting to me is that Neil Gaiman was the only one in his kind of opening words who never mentioned 9-11 once. Everybody on stage, when they got up to talk, that was what they talked about. It was, it was about superheroes and 9-11. You know, I think one of the people on stage envisioned this world in which Wolverine was on the plane with the terrorists and sort of, you know, got up and, and hit them with his finger spikes. And it, it, it kind of rubbed me the wrong way 
because I remember thinking, you know, this is not the time to pretend that our fictional heroes are going to do us any kind of good. <laughs> it's too real. It's a nice thought that, yes, if we had these amazing heroes who were always in the right place at the right time, that they would have saved us. But they didn't. And Neil Gaiman got up and never mentioned 9-11 once. He, he just sort of told a story. I don't even remember what it was that he talked about. But by the end of it, for about 30 seconds, we all forgot. And in a weird way, I think that prepared us to have a more serious conversation versus the, yeah, Wolverine would have got him if he'd have been there, which, which just felt very trite to me. The reason that that stood out to me was because it illustrated very neatly that for a storyteller in a time of great national tragedy and upheaval, the way forward is not always the way through. That sometimes we assume we're in a position to attack things head on and, and yes, we're going to fight whatever it is or, or get through whatever it is. And it's, it's very easy to blur the line at that point between storytelling and, and just sort of shallow saber rattling. But what he said at that time illustrated to me that it was possible to speak in a deeper key and not to pretend that you have all the answers or that you need all the answers. You know, everybody was, was in an incredibly tense, somber, reflective mood. And it, it, I think, brought a lot of us, especially who were about my age, I was 18 at the time, into the realization that we are all mortal, that, that, that nothing that we think is eternal is eternal, and uh, that the world maybe didn't look the way that we had been taught growing up. And I remember when I was there, somebody in the audience, a college student like myself, asked Neil Gaiman, if you knew that you had only two more months to live, what would you do differently? And he said, nothing. And to me at that time, I thought, wow, that's, that's enlightenment. When you are so satisfied with what you do and, and the people in your life and the things that you have contributed or tried to contribute, that you can say, if I knew that I only had a couple of months to live, I would change nothing. That means that you have done something profoundly good. And it really stuck with me, especially at that time when all of us were feeling so profoundly vulnerable. It was sort of helpful to hear something like that coming from a secular artistic figure I really admired. I was I was kind of at the beginning of a religious awakening of a very old school kind of 19th century type, and I knew nobody at all who was going through what I was going through. It was completely anomalous. It was not something that you did in 2001. It, it, was, it was just absolutely anathema, and I couldn't talk to anybody about it, and it really sucked. So to see somebody that I admired from the secular world, you know, from, from sort of the ordinary world, say something like, 
if I knew I was going to die, I would change nothing, was very reaffirming to me that we were all kind of on a common path, that we were looking to lead lives that satisfied our ethical drives, that satisfied our sense of purpose, and that could lead to a place where we thought, yes, I have done what I need to do, and if I did die tomorrow, I would not feel regret of having left something undone. And, you know, I think that is really sort of at the heart of a lot of different religious traditions as well. And it sort of reassured me that while what I was going through at the time might be very strange for a millennial living in 2001, we weren't even using the term millennial at that point, uh, it was not so outside of the human experience that, that other people did not feel it and understand it. You can learn more about G. Willow Wilson by going to her website, gwillowwilson.com, or checking out her Twitter, at gwillowwilson. Thank you so much for listening to Tell Them I Am. I am Misha Youssef. This episode of Tell Them I Am was sound designed by James Kim and written by James Kim, me, and Arwen Nix. Mary Knopf is my producer, and don't tell James Kim, but Mary's cat likes him better than her. Arwen Nix is the podcast boss here at KPCC, and she is also our editor. Sean Corey Campbell and Valentina Rivera are our engineers. Our tile art is by our talented designer, Stephanie Croft. Our beautiful music is by David Leinard. You can find incredible illustrations of all of our guests as the episodes release. Thanks to Emin Ahmed for those. You should really go see them. Just go to kpcc.org slash tell them or follow me on Instagram or Twitter at Misha Youssef. We'll be back tomorrow with our final episode.